finding a process that works for your team. I have a funny feeling we're going to talk a lot about Agile. <laughs> Hopefully. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 89 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Uber. Hello. Pete Hodgson. Hello from Hollywood, California. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Jeff Gilbert. Howdy, from Austin, Texas. I'm pretty sure we've had you on the show before, but you want to introduce yourself again? Yeah, I'm uh, Jeff Gilbert. Uh, I'm an iOS architect at Mutual Mobile, so we do development for other companies, got a number of, for a number of apps. Oh, cool. So we're kind of getting into a softer topic. We We tend to talk a lot about the technology in iOS, and then you know, occasionally, if it's just Jamie and I, we'll talk about freelancing. And this week, we're talking a little bit more on the kind of the soft topics like, uh, you know, finding a process that works for your team or things like that. First off, how, how do you work in your company? Like, what what's the process that you have? And then maybe you can back us into how you got there. Yeah, so basically, we follow Scrum, you know, two-week sprints, et cetera. It's nice that we have, you know, all this sort of different roles you might play are actually different individuals. So we have like a you know, full QA department. We have interaction designers. We have visual designers. We have developers, uh, project managers. Uh, so everybody really only needs to wear one hat versus, you know, an independent developer may have to wear 10 hats. So it makes it easier in that sense that everybody's role is a little more clear and more focused. As far as a process, when we start a new project, we go through discovery where we will work with the client for you know a week or two to really understand what their business needs are and all the re- initial high level requirements and use cases will come out of that and then we will you know we'll do like backlog grooming and sprint planning where we pick off which stories we're going to do for that sprint and we usually try to allow the uh, designers to stay one sprint ahead of us so say for the sprint zero, they may start to do some of the initial uh, interaction and visual designs while you know, in sprint zero, the developers will just be getting the project uh, build system ready to go. And as far as tooling, uh, we are real big on the Atlassian tool suite. And so we use Stash as our Git repo and Bamboo for our CI system and Confluence for a uh, place to you know, communicate all of our requirements, et cetera. 
And so the developers will be getting the whole build system up and running. And then by the time Sprint 1 starts, we'll already have, you know, visual designs that we can start to implement for the stories that we pick. Are these web projects or iOS projects or both? Well, they all tend to work that way. I mean, so at Mutual Mobile, we have iOS developers, we have web developers, and we have Android developers. And uh, we even had Windows at one point uh, when there was interested Windows development. Uh, but yeah, so we can sort of cover different major platforms these days. And we all, all, all the different teams work in a similar fashion. And it's common for us to maybe target for the same project to target multiple platforms simultaneously. So the project I'm working on now, we actually have Android and iOS work going on at the, at the same time. I'm curious, do you find any little tweaks you need to make for the process for kind of developing native versus web just because of kind of you've got that external constraint of kind of the App Store or the Play Store where you you can't release, you know, you can't do kind of continuous deployment, for example. Do you find that for web applications there's a slightly different tweak to the process or is it pretty much the same despite that? Overall, it's the same. I, I would imagine the stories that they pick will be different because, yes, as you say, with the web apps, they can actually deploy those a lot more frequently. Whereas with iOS, um, even though we are running in you know these two-week sprints, it's usually will be several months before we actually have a release ready for the App Store. And so that, that can allow us to change up the order in which we pick uh, the stories that we're going to work on because it, it'll allow us to spread a story out over a multiple sprints if we know we, we don't actually have to ship a simple version now and add on to it, we can actually just take it all the way through to completion. Gosh, yeah, that makes sense. Do you wind up you- uh, adjusting your process from one team to another? Because different people work better under certain circumstances than others. Or do you try and just hire people that will all work the same process? At a high level, I mean, I don't think it changes a whole lot. But, you know, once we are within a sprint, we'll certainly try to do things differently. And yeah, I see Scrum mainly as a sort of the project management side of Agile. The actual engineering practices will certainly change based on the makeup of the team. Personally, I'm a big fan of TDD, and I try to encourage that in the teams I work with and based on the experience and comfort level of the people on any particular team, uh, I will try and either push them more to do that or maybe just even help them learn to take the next baby step in that. Are you guys typically just all kind of mutual mobile folks for all of the roles, or is, is it sometimes co-sourced with the client? Because I, f- I find that often changes the process because different clients obviously want to work slightly differently or have different comfort levels with different engineering practices, that kind of stuff. Yeah, our most common environment and the one we prefer is where we do take everything completely in-house and we are responsible for everything, QA design development. Sometimes projects will come along and maybe we only get to do the design and the client may have their own in-house developers or sometimes we'll do the development and design may be done in-house. And that certainly does complicate the situation just because, well, as always, you know, communication is critical and when the team is that sort of separated and like if design is done here and development's done is say done by the client, it's just harder to on a daily basis to keep the teams up on top of what's going along with each other. And as far as yeah, the way our office is arranged here at Mutual Mobile, we have, it's a large open floor space and we collect our desks in what we call pods. And so all the team members will put their desks together and so you'll actually have the design, dev, QA, project management, all sitting, you know, right next to each other. And then when your project is finished, you'll pick up your stuff and move to another desk, you know, wherever that next team happens to be located. And just having that immediate, being that close to each other 
it's just easy to overhear, you know, if maybe the designers are talking amongst themselves and you may just pick up on something that they mentioned and that will notice a problem or allows you to head off problems sooner than later. What role in a relationship do you have with the QA portion of your development process? Is that an external group? Is it client supplied or do you have internal? Uh, we have our uh, own internal QA department and a lot of times our QA will come up with uh, test objectives and they'll actually do a lot of the testing before we release. But a lot of times we do integrate with, you know, the clients may have their own uh, UAT process as we get closer to releasing to the actual app store. They'll, you know, do their own user acceptance testing. So the bulk of the QA work is done in-house and then we'll slowly transition or integrate with the client, you know, towards the end of the project. Are they also sort of closely tied to the development process? Are they physically in the same space or what's that interaction like? Yeah. And that's one of the things I'm trying to help improve even more. Yeah. So a project will have dedicated QA members assigned to it and they come to our standups. They're just a part of daily development life and they sit with us along with everybody else. Right now we still do a lot of manual testing. I mean, they'll come up with the test objectives. And then they'll, you know, share those with the developer so the developer roughly knows what they're looking for. But then they'll go off and as the features are, you know, checked into the uh, main branch, they'll run through their test cases. And uh, one thing I'm trying to figure out is how to move to more automated testing. So then we can free up QA to spend more time on other things that they could do to help build a quality product overall and just find better ways to improve the collaboration between QA and development and design. Yeah, one thing that you talked about, like integrating the QA with the development staff, that's a really solid way of doing Agile. Is to, the more you can shorten the feedback between creating a bug and fixing it, that just helps you know keeping your development team going forward. One anti-pattern I've noticed with that, especially doing Scrum, where you get a one-week, two-week sprint, is that, okay, your QA is on the team, they have nothing to do for the first nine days of the sprint, and they've got all the testing to do on the last day. How do you avoid that? Hopefully, any individual story that we take on won't take the entire sprint. So one story may take me half a day or two days or whatever. And so as I check each story into the main trunk or the development branch we're working on, QA can go ahead and test that new feature then. That does allow them to do continuous testing throughout the course of the sprint. Of course, as we roll up towards the end of the sprint, we will do a code freeze and allow them to do sort of a final a full system check, and they can run their full regression suite. Yeah, I think i, I got to say that's the bit of Scrum that I'm the least fan of is that choppiness of at the start of the iteration, the QAs are waiting for those first stories to get done, and then at the end, they're under the gun to like get done before this kind of arbitrary cutoff point, and then it's kind of the cycle. I think QAs end up getting beaten up about that if you're not really diligent about kind of that, that small story thing. Have you guys experimented with anything the more kind of like uh, lean or Kanban type things of not having a cutoff point, as it were, but just kind of having a continuous flow of stories kind of moving through and then having kind of a, a cadence of, you know, every two weeks we do a, a retro and a showcase and all the rest of it, but we don't have like a, a cutoff point of like stories must be done by 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. on Tuesday or whatever. Yeah, I know some projects have run a, a Kanban style process, and I think they've it's worked out well. I think it tends to depend on the nature of the work that they're doing and the sort of the timeline they're working with. On the project I'm working on now, we actually ended up for a phase we did transition to a Kanban style because we were helping a client finish off some existing work. 
and it went on longer than expected just as the requirements became clear as to you know, all, all the edge cases, edge cases we needed to handle. And so we sort of stopped sprinting and went, just did more of a Kanban. Here's all the issues and we'll just work through them and release things as we see, you know, release builds as we see they solve problems. But now that we sort of have that in, under control, we'll probably go back to a more traditional sprint style process. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key thing, right, is different processes work in different contexts and for different teams. I think the big, to me, the the only real requirement for Agile is the introspection, like having a team be able to, on a regular basis, like look back at what, what they're doing and, and tweak the process to make it their own process rather than something they're reading from a book or whatever. Of course, it's quite frustrating for a team because, well, for me as a consultant, when I show up, they just want me to tell them what to do to an extent, like what's the way we do Agile? And it can be very frustrating for me to say to them, well, that all depends on what do you want to blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Standard answer. <laughs> it depends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think one of the other key aspects of Agile is just you know, getting that feedback as quickly as you can. And so the quicker you can get feedback, the quicker you can react. And that's one of the things I'm looking at trying to improve. And so as you say, like even if you wait till the code is checked in and then QA runs their tests, that's still a little bit of time lag between by the time the developer writes the code and then it may be a day or two before he finds out if it really works. And so moving towards more automated testing will allow the developers to get that feedback even faster. So if QA can help define the tests up front and the developers can actually automate them, then as the developer goes, if he's writing those tests then yeah, he'll get that feedback within minutes instead of hours or days. I say, yeah, that's one of the challenges is, I mean, you have to have collaboration between, you know, at least QA and developer. So you have to get QA to the point where they can actually, you know, present requirements in a way that makes it easy for the developers to automate those tests. And then you have to have developers get comfortable with writing automated tests because, you know, especially with iOS apps, they are seen as being so UI heavy that it can be difficult to understand how and what to test. Uh, but, you know, there's certainly, just with enough experience, you can, you know, figure out how to go about, you know, writing automated tests for iOS apps and just sort of getting that experience uh, and comfort level. And then if we do that, then that will allow the QA team to maybe focus more of their time. And if they are going to do manual testing, I think it would be better spent if they could do a lot of exploratory testing rather than functional testing manually. Yeah, I do want to jump in here because, uh, you know, I think we've all worked on teams that worked well and we all have worked on teams that haven't. And it seems like the teams that I've worked on the best or, you know, that seem to have the best process that worked for them were teams that did kind of what Pete was talking about where they get feedback on their process itself. And so they sit down, they have, uh, usually it's a retrospective meeting where they start saying, okay, you know, what's, What's working for us? What's not working for us? You know, what's kind of the slam dunk stuff and what's, what are the real stinkers in our process? And then they can discuss, okay, well, let's try this. Uh, let's iterate on our process and try pair programming or try setting up a CI server or try, you know, doing test first or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, after a week or two weeks, then they can come back and they can talk about it. Or in some cases, I mean, I've been on teams that experimented for like two months. You know, they had somebody go and research pair programming and then they came back and said, yeah, you know, all of the people who talk about it say that you have to do it regularly for a longer period of time before you can really see the benefits. And so, you know, it's like, okay, well, we're going to pair half time for four weeks. Then we start to figure out, okay, this really isn't working. This really does work. And I've worked in companies where teams 
Between teams, you have a vastly different process just because they've figured out that they're able to get more done if they work in a little bit different way. And everyone's happier that way, too, because everybody has input on how you do things. I've been fortunate. I can only, because I've been doing writing software for about 24, 25 years now, and I can don't even need one hand to count the number of people that I really did enjoy working with. So I've been fortunate to always work with uh, just really fun, talented, creative individuals. And that's actually how, what makes this job so much fun is actually just getting to spend your day around these people. So just you know, finding ways that part of your job is to actually spend time working with designers, working with QA, rather than just going off in your uh, little silo and just typing code all day. That's not as fun. But so you know, figuring out a process that allows you or almost sort of demands or requires you to spend a lot of time working with the other individuals on the team, I think, leads to a much happier team. Do you ever have kind of clients who you're working with who see how you're working and then kind of ask you to to help them kind of adopt similar practices for their internal engineering teams? As the whole iOS market has matured, the nature of the work that we take on has adjusted over time. You know, so when Misha Mobile started about five years ago, we were doing lots of just small little one-month uh, real simple apps, and we'd sort of work on them and then put them out the door, and we'd never see or think about them again. And now, just as the nature of our clients has advanced, uh, we tend to do a uh, fewer number of projects that are longer term, you know, six months, a year, 18 months. And because of that, it's natural for a lot of our clients to long term want to take that work in-house you know, as they sort of build up their own team. Uh, and so we definitely have uh, worked with our clients to help them you know, transition and build up their own internal staff. And, yeah, they do take cues from the way we work. And so then they can build their teams in a similar fashion. So actually, you want, I mean, I, for me, I think that's one of the big benefits of, of a lot of those kind of agile engineering practices, things like pair programming, is it acts as a really nice way to do knowledge transfer. Like when you are trying to transfer ownership of a project from kind of something that a external company is building into something that's owned in-house, that, that ability to kind of gradually move in-house developers into a team and have them pair up with the existing team to kind of learn things and just gradually kind of transition from mostly external folks to mostly internal folks over time. It's, it's, it's a very nice, smooth way of doing it rather than having this kind of adversarial kind of point in time where you hand something off and everything has to be done and contracts are signed and all that kind of stuff. It's, nice, it's a nice, smooth transition if you can have people pair and pick up the knowledge that way rather than a bunch of documentation. You could, like, crazy until Friday, the last day, and then, here you go. Any questions? Gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. So, I haven't had a lot of personal experience with pair programming. I'm interested to try it, but I'm not sure. How do you go about starting, and what has sort of been your experience and some of the challenges with pair programming? So, I think I often describe pair programming as like the most stressful thing to like of all of the, if, if, if I show up to a team that's like, we want to do agile or we want to get better at agile. There's a lot of stuff that we kind of work through. One of the things that I describe is that the thing that's going to be the most stressful for them is, is doing pair programming. It, once you get it and once you get comfortable with it, I, I think it's got tons and tons of benefits, but it's very stressful to start doing it. So I kind of advise teams to not dive into like, Hey, let's pair eight hours a day but to start by kind of dip their toe into the water and find a few tasks that they think are valuable or that are good kind of candidates for pairing on. And then gradually over time, they'll kind of work out what works and what doesn't work. But slamming straight into eight hours a day of pairing is very hard work if you're not used to it because there's a lot of communication. It's a lot. Honestly, when you're pairing for eight hours a day, you're actually programming 
for the majority of your time. And the average developer is not programming on their own, is not programming for eight hours a day. They're programming for a bit, and then they're kind of checking their email and reading an article. and Attending a meeting. Yeah, going to meetings, exactly. And it's very, it's surprising how much mentally drain, how mentally draining it is to like actually just be full on programming for eight hours. Um, yeah, I remember the first time I did it for eight hours, I was exhausted. Yeah. And so one of the things that I see happening a lot with folks that aren't used to pair programming is one person tends to dominate the pairing session. So one person, normally it's the more senior engineer or the person who's more vocal or more opinionated tends to do all of the driving and the other person is kind of sitting there. The biggest red flag for me is when I see a pair in air quotes where one person's like checking their email on their phone while pairing, uh, which you do see sometimes. So there's like lots of practices around that, like uh, ping pong pairing is one that I'm a really big fan of where uh, one person writes a failing test. Well, let's say you don't want to do TDD. One person writes the code and then their pair is writes a test to verify that code. And then the second person writes the next piece of code, and then the first person writes the test to verify that. So you kind of have this enforced uh, rhythm of switching who's the driver and who's the navigator on a regular basis. That's one nice way to keep it from being from one person kind of doing all of the typing and the other person kind of zoning out. But yeah, there's loads of there's loads of practices like that, I guess. So with TDD, writing unit tests, and pair programming, we've just hit red flags with most managers in the world of doubling <laughs> effort, writing twice as much code as you need to write and having twice as many people that you need to do it, that you need to write this code. How do you show that this is worth it? Because I, I do agree it's worth it and it's valuable for a lot of different things, but why? Because it goes so against I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer. Sense. I'm going to take the easy one to answer there, which is the, the unit testing. The question I always ask someone who asks that is, does your manager often check in on how... Uh, how long your methods are or like whether you're using underscores or dashes or camel case, whatever. Your manager doesn't care about that. They care about you being productive and building quality software. Um, how you do that is your job as an engineer. It's your job to be a professional and build good quality software. Unit testing is part of building good quality software. If you're not doing that, it's your fault. You don't need to go to your manager and ask them to do a good job. You should be doing a good job. That's like, for me, the unit testing one is just, it's a no-brainer. It's like saying, should I ask my manager to set up a CI server? Like, do you want to do a good job or not? Like, you don't need to ask permission to do a good job. It's not something that I think a manager should be focusing on is, is what are the technical practices of my team well, you know, to that level of granularity. The, the other thing is, is that a lot of times with a lot of the agile practices, it really is an experiment at first. And it's a lot easier, I found, to sell managers on an experiment as opposed to trying to sell them on, you know, some practice because, you know, it's the way to do it. And so, you know, when we're talking about things like TDD or writing tests or things like that, a lot of times you can go to them and you can pitch it to them as, hey, we're going to try this for a while. And then if it doesn't work, then we'll go back to doing it the way we've been doing it. And a lot of times they're open to that. You know, we're trying to, we're trying to make our process better. We're trying to be more efficient. We're trying to whatever. I mean, you're, you're speaking their language there because they care about the bottom line too. And so in that, in those cases, you know, we're going to try pair programming for a month and see if it makes things better. And then if it doesn't, then you go back and, you know, so there's a little bit of risk there, but you're only going to keep it if it's successful. I think Chuck, you made a really good point that. Really, you've got to think about what do they care about, like what's their focus, and their focus is on things like having a productive team, 
uh, reducing like the bus factor or the lottery factor. Like they don't want if one person wins the lottery and, and decides to quit the company, they don't want half of the knowledge of that code base walking out with them. So that's one of the things I would point out with pair programming is it's a really good way of spreading collective code ownership and, and not having all of the knowledge about one part of the code living in one person's head. It's also makes it way easier to onboard a new person into a team, makes it really easier to transfer knowledge about some new technique and kind of normalize the team so that you don't have Bob and Sarah have decided that they want to use AF networking with blocks and Jim and, and Helen are using AF networking with callbacks, right? Like you want consistency across your code base and if you're pairing up on things, then uh, it helps kind of spread that consistency. So there's a, there's a lot of kind of benefits to pairing that are more than just the standard kind of productivity argument of like you can get more stuff done, which I think is true, but there's lots of other ancillary benefits that a that a manager type can can relate to, I think. Well, and the other yeah, the other end of that is that, you know, if you come in and you make arguments like that, it's different from saying, well, I heard about this pairing thing because I went to an XP meetup, XP Extreme Programming. I went to an XP meetup and they were talking about it. So we're just going to kind of try it because it sounds cool as opposed to I've done some research and then you list all the benefits that Pete just listed. So we're going to see if we get those here. You know, if, if it's a well-thought-out, well-researched idea, then it's a completely different sell from, well, pair programming is the cool thing, so we're going to try it. Yeah, I think and the bus factor is a quick win with pair programming. And even with pair programming, you don't need to do eight hours a day. Like Pete said, you can just do a little thing, half hour, hour at a time, if you're just trying to pass off different functionality. And that spreads knowledge around the team. And even a little bit, you can get benefit. Yeah, I like processes or practices that sooner than later illustrate weaknesses in your overall process. And so, like taking TDD as an example, you know, if you have trouble writing tests, it could be that the requirements aren't very clear and you don't understand what it is you're supposed to be doing. And that will then allow you to work with QA to help figure out really what the requirements or specifications are. Maybe the client hasn't really thought through what all the edge cases are. And going back to collaboration, from the point of view of the developer looking out, I see the role of the developer is to turn requirements into source code. And then the question is, what is a requirement? A requirement is an answer to the question, how should the system respond in this particular situation? And so who answers those questions? You know, that would be the different designers, your business designer, interaction designer, visual designer. They define how the system responds. And then who asks the questions? That's the job of QA. And so if everybody's sort of playing that role, then the whole development will flow smoothly. And then when you start to see hiccups, like, you know, if you are trying to do right tests, maybe the requirements aren't clear because maybe the right questions haven't been asked. They haven't been answered properly. Yeah, but then when all that does come together, then that certainly makes the job of the developer easier. So one thing that we, we haven't really touched on that I think is I'm really interested in because it's particularly, it's a bigger issue in mobile development. So you, you already touched on the fact that with mobile, things tend to be kind of UI heavy, particularly with iOS. We have a very strong focus on like really nice user experience and like really rich UX. Like what do you do to, to help kind of bring that into the process? So, so bringing in designers and making, and making that design need for like a holistic user experience line up with the agile thing of, you know, releasing value every, every sprint or whatever. Because that's a, I think that's a really, really big challenge. It's something I'm still trying to kind of figure out good answers to. Yeah, and yeah, we're still struggling with that. Because as you say, the designers want to sort of define 
you know, a design language for the app as a whole and figure out what the how the whole app should feel, even though all the features may not be understood on day one, but they need to design something that will be flexible enough to, as we continue to add features, that their design will be able to accommodate and expand for that. And so that, you know, for now, you know, what we do is we just spend more time up front giving the designers, and a lot of this will sort of start in our discovery phase where they will start to do things like create mood boards and work with the customer to understand sort of what the rough visual style is thereafter. But we will still front load the designers and give them enough time to design something that's flexible. But the downside of that is it does delay how quickly development can really get going because we don't, if we don't have any UIs to develop, there's really not a whole lot we can do. So we're still trying to figure out ways that we can let the designers do their work, but then also allow the developers to start their work sooner. But as you say, it is still definitely a challenge. Yeah, I think there's there's like a lot of interesting stuff been going on in the last couple of years with like Lean UX is one of the things I've seen. One of the, I don't know, buzzwords I've seen kind of going around of trying to make that user experience work more iterative and more kind of feedbacky, right? Which is what I think you already said this, like one of the really big things of Agile is is getting feedback and, and replaying that back into things like UX. But I, I still think it's something we're all kind of figuring out good practices on is how to balance that need to have a really nice holistic thing that you fought through up, up front and kind of, you know, mood boards and stuff like that, but also be able to respond to change, which is kind of like what we're trying to get with Agile, right, is being able to see a change in our external environment or our internal market or whatever and shift gears. So I don't know. It's, I think it's really interesting. It's a really interesting challenge to solve that, particularly in something like iOS, which is so UI heavy. I was going to ask along, along those lines, with regard to uh, UX, have you encountered any situations where you, in your process to support sort of A-B testing? I know on the web it's a bit easier to do, um, but it's a bit of a challenge. We've had some discussions about sort of which UX implementation would work best. We don't really have a robust way to sort of verify uh, right now, sort of build it, make a decision after some discussions and implement it, and then get feedback after the apps in the App Store. Yeah, we have recently uh, started a user research team here at Mooch Mobile. Uh, so we will actually go out and find prospective real-world customers, not just people in-house necessarily. And we can initially start with uh, mock-ups, but then oftentimes even as the actual development progresses, we can take the build as it stands and we will let real users test it in a controlled environment You know, so we can monitor the reactions. And then we definitely have taken that feedback and uh, we do refine, are able to refine the UI throughout the lifetime of the apps. So by the time it actually does get to the app store, it has already undergone a fair bit of uh, user testing. That works well with projects with long timelines. And if you had a project that you're trying to do in a month, you know, there'd probably be less freedom to do a lot of uh, user research testing. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like in that case, you sort of have to make a decision and roll with it versus getting sort of iterative feedback in an app that has a longer life cycle as far as development is concerned. Yeah, A-B testing on UIs seems like that would be a pretty big problem to tackle with like native apps just because it seems to take longer. There's more involved in actually fully implementing a UI on a native app versus a web app. So I'm curious, um, and this is a question for everybody, what parts of your process do you think make the biggest difference in the way that you write code? Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, is it the way you write stories? Is it the way you actually, uh, is, you know, some process in actually writing your code? 
Is it the way that you track progress? Is it the way that you communicate? Is there like one method of doing that that makes a big difference? We are actually been going through a developing a new process and we've been iterating on this for a number of weeks. And I have to say, probably the biggest thing that I find as a benefit for us, it helps us is something that I would not have thought beforehand. And that's the attitude of the people involved. Our team is really open to continually improving the product and improving our process. So there are very small egos when it comes to implementing changes. Even if someone's used to doing something a certain way, our team is very amenable. And I think that goes a long way to sort of finding the the optimal solution for your team, just being open to hearing and also being vocal, having to be vocal to your fellow team members about what you think works and what not what's not working, and then having that discussion and moving forward with giving some modification a try. I think that is an awesome point. I totally agree with that. The thing that makes this stuff work is a team that's not terrified of change. Everyone finds change scary and uncomfortable, but being open to it and embracing it in enough that you're kind of vocal about what's working and what's not is like the key to success. If you can do that, I almost guarantee you'll get better in some ways. You might, you're never going to get perfect. You're always going to have little roadblocks and little niggles and issues. But if the folks on your team in general are like open to improving their, themselves and like kind of open to the process of doing it, then there's no way you're not going to get better over time. For the way we work, I think just the fact that everybody sits together uh, as one group. Uh, I think play makes the biggest difference just because you have that continuous collaboration. Like, and if a developer is uh, implementing uh, UI, they'll actually sit there and they'll, they'll sit at the desk with the designer and they are able to iterate very rapidly. They can make a change. How's this look? Oh, let me tweak this, you know, type a little bit. And, you know, within seconds or minutes, they're able to get that feedback. So about a year or two ago, everyone started saying that Agile was dead, you know, the capital A Agile, and they changed it to something else. I'm not sure what it is. But people are still having success using different Agile methods, and Agile itself is not a huge defined methodology. It's more of a way of being, which that's a... Is it lean? Is that the, is that the one? Yeah, I've been is joking. Lean? I've been joking recently that it's like, Agile with a big A is dead. It's Agile with a small A. Oh, wait, Agile with a small A is dead. It's lean, or slash Kanban. And pretty soon lean will, will not be cool anymore. And then we'll be doing lean with a, lean with a small n, maybe. I don't know. Or lean with a small l, rather. Yeah, something like that. But the basic concepts are pretty solid and they've been solid from day one, getting feedback on your mistakes faster, getting what you do in the hands of people that make the decisions that want to see it so you can improve things and keep on improving. So I'm just wondering like, what things have you adapted from Agile that maybe wouldn't fit. Are you asking what isn't kind of in the dogmatic kind of canon of Agile, but but turns out to be sticking to the, the principles of it rather than the, the kind of the rituals? Yeah, I think that's good. Like what things that may go against the capital A Agile or whatever the new word is now are working for, for you, you and your team? The big thing that I've been doing for the last, or I've been on teams that are doing for the last two years or so is not doing uh, story estimates and not doing iteration planning meetings. And oh my gosh, it is so much nicer to not have to do the planning and do the story estimation. It is so much better. Every team I go on now, I kind of sing the song of like, maybe we don't have to sit in a hot conference room for an hour every week or every two weeks arguing about whether it's a three point story or a five point story. 
that's my big kind of the thing I've been doing on Teams recently that diverges from the kind of the uh, the big A agile maybe the Scrum. Definitely, I'm pretty sure Scrum has in the manual somewhere that you're supposed to do estimation, and I don't believe it's a productive activity. Heresy. So, but so no, <laughs> I enjoy so, being a heretic a little bit. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things in in Scrum that kind of go against a lot of development environments. It's there's some environments where you know you can't really fit what you need to do in two weeks, and splitting it up, you take more effort splitting it up, trying to make something deliverable within a week or two weeks. That doesn't work. But yeah, a lot of times you're trying to estimate a story and you don't know, and they call it a swag because you're just guessing, but you definitely don't. A lot of times you're not getting a lot of value out of those meetings. So I agree with that. For me, the two things, the main value that I would say you get out of those meetings is you discuss the work ahead of you and you make sure that everyone understands it. And having the kind of the the sort of Damocles over your head of like, you better get these estimates right because otherwise someone's going to beat you up in a week's time for not hitting your velocity number. That sucks, but it's good in forcing people to actually pay attention to, you know, do I understand the work ahead of me next week? So that's the one thing that is useful of, of estimation. But the other, that I don't really see that much benefit sizing the stories that way. What I find is uh, it works way better and gives you most of the benefit is just make the stories small. If you think the story is too big for you to do in two or three days, slice it up into two smaller stories. And then you get the, the benefit of points in terms of kind of a rough plan of how much are we going to get done in the next few weeks because you know, you know, we've got 10 stories and on average the team seems to take about four days per story. So, you know, we've got 40 days of kind of dev days of, of work ahead of us. So I think you get a lot of the benefit of doing that without the angst-ridden, one-hour, sweaty conference room debating over whether it's a five-point story or a seven-point story or whatever. But it, that's, it's a real skill. Like I think, Jane, one of the things you said that, that I hear a lot and I totally relate to is you can't make this, like how to slice up this work so that we can get it done in less than X period of time. And I think it's quite counterintuitive that some of the stuff that you can do to make it happen. You can make it happen, but sometimes it feels like you're giving yourself more work than you need. But the flip side is you're breaking it up into small chunks and you can make continuous progress towards your goal rather than not really knowing whether you're going to get there in time or not. Yeah. One other thing that I, I really think goes into agile or just successful teams in general is communication. And it's funny because I talk to people who are going freelance and, and I'm like, you know what ABC stands for? And they all say, always be closing. And then I tell them, no, it's always be communicating. You know, and mm. if you're communicating well, then you're going to be closing deals as a freelancer. But if you're communicating well, then your clients are happier. You understand what they need. They understand what you need. They know where you're at. They know what the snags are. They know why you're going to be late or why you're going to be early. You know, they know that they're getting what they want. And it's not that different in a team. And I, I think that's uh, one of the major things. If it's the first point in the Agile Manifesto, I think, is communication, collaboration over whatever it is. And, uh, Contracts. Right. And so it's, it, you know, the more that you can communicate, the more people know where things are at, the more people know what they need to do, and the more that you are getting clarification and feedback, the better off you're going to be. And that's what a lot of these systems are about. So... If you're, yeah, if you're focused on just doing the thing because somebody said you should do it, and this is the problem that I have with a lot of the methodologies, then you're not going to succeed. But if you're talking about it and figuring out this is working, this makes this difference, you know, you're talking to the, the other stakeholders and, you know, 
doing this makes this other process easier. And then, you know, like I said, the communication in the timelines, the costs, and the the requirements, it, it just makes a huge difference. Yeah, big plus one to that last sentiment of not sticking to doing stuff because something tells you to do it. Look beyond the manual and look beyond the practices to the principles behind those practices, and then you're going to be successful. If you can iterate over time and improve your process and you understand some of the reasons behind these practices, then I think the team will get better over time. Yep. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Alondo, what are your picks? Uh, I actually only have one pick this week, and it is... uh, I've got... uh, some of the uh, tiny sky nano drones. It's a really small precision controlled uh, quadcopter. And, uh, I got them for my nephews. I previously had a pick with the uh, Edison robots. We got those before the Christmas break and we enjoyed them. So I decided to introduce them to little nano drones and see how they enjoy those as well. Awesome. Pete, what are your picks? So my first pick is this idea of no estimates. And I've already ranted about it. So I'll just leave it at that. Consider just breaking up your work into small stories rather than estimating each story in excruciating, grueling detail. The other pick is, a, is an engineering practice which I've, I've seen a few teams use and I, I think is generally quite useful, and it's this thing called mob coding. So the idea is once a week or twice a week, you get together as an entire, all of the developers on the team get together and work on code together. So someone throws up you know, their IDE onto a, a projector and you solve a small problem together as a um, it's a good way of kind of aligning on engineering practices. It's a good way on of kind of spreading knowledge about some new technique that someone's decided to try using or some new library that they've started using. So mob coding is a good idea. And then the last pick that I'll have, which is a little bit, I thought was a little bit of, apparently isn't, is uh, the tete-a-tete desk arrangement. So this is something that Josh Sasser of Ruby Rogues fame, or of Ruby fame in general, blogged about about five years ago, and it's this weird arrangement of desks that make uh, pair programming more high-fiveable, if nothing else. It makes it a lot easier to high-five while pair programming if you set up your desks this way. And I always thought it was kind of a joke, and then I pinged him on Twitter the other day to see if he continued using it, and apparently, you know, five years later, he's still a huge fan of it, and all the teams he works on use this arrangement. So tete-a-tete desk pairing is my final. Thought it was a joke, but not really a joke pick. Very cool. Jane, do you have some picks for us? Yep, I I have a couple of anti-picks. One is the mail carrier showing up a little bit earlier than usual during during the (laughs) podcast. My dog is currently scaring them off. So I I think they just left. He scared them off, so we're all good. So that's my anti-pick. Stick to a schedule, mail mail carriers, so I can do my podcast. Another anti-pick. So I've been doing testing with Swift. And if you've been doing any non-trivial testing, you get into the problem where unless you declare a property or method public, your test bundle can't see it. You can't see it from the test bundle. So all of the descriptions I've seen about how to handle this say, well, create everything, make everything public, which is okay. But most of them are say, also saying, oh, if you just add the file to the test bundle, then you'll be fine. And I'm saying don't do this because you, you'll end up managing two test projects with all the files in there. It's a complete headache. If you have any CocoaPods or anything like that, then you have to manage them in both places, so it's kind of a pain. So don't add your your files to your test bundle. Don't do it. That's my anti-pick for the day. Very cool. I've just got one pick. I've been playing this game on my phone. I think I picked this on all of my shows because I like it. Um, it's called A Dark Room. 
We had Amir on the Entreprogrammers podcast and talked to him for a while about building iOS apps and marketing them and stuff like that. And it was really cool. There was a lot of, uh, I guess it's been a very successful app for him. So, uh, to the point where it was like number one in his category of games. Um, and it's basically like one of those text-based games that used to play on a PC back in the day when you didn't have like the high-end graphics and stuff. Anyway, so the interface isn't very pretty, but it's it's a lot of fun. So, anyway, totally just enjoyed it. I just beat the game, like, right before the show. So, anyway, go check it out. Jeff, what are your picks? I got a few few today. First one is a book, ATDD by Example, Practical Guide to Acceptance Test Driven Development. And I don't like it just because it's about testing, but it's, it's an example of setting a long-term goal of something you could drive towards, and the journey of actually trying to get there, it will just show you what parts of your process you need to improve. And a lot of it is, again, focus on communication with the rest of your team. So I guess out of that, the super recommendation is just yeah, set a long-term goal of something that can uh, help improve the communication between other people on your team. An app I like is called Timeout. It's a little app that sits in the background and encourages you to take breaks occasionally. And they have what's called uh, regular breaks, I think, and micro breaks. So like a micro break is like a 15-second break every 10 minutes. And that just gives you a chance to sort of shift your focus uh, instead of staring at your screen. gives you 15 seconds to look out the window uh, or something like that. And then by default, every uh, hour, it wants you to take a 10-minute break. And that just gives you a chance to get up, stretch your legs, take a walk go talk to somebody, and it just keeps you from uh, sort of falling into a hole and disappearing for the day. And then uh, as far as the beverage, something I had the other day, it's a Breckenridge 471 Small Batch IPA <clears throat> from the fine folks at Breckenridge up in uh, Colorado. And yeah, I'm normally, uh, I love IPAs. I'm a big hophead. And this one was nice because it actually had a little more sweetness than I'm used to in most IPAs. So, so it was a nice change of pace. And that's it. Very cool. I think that's everybody. So uh, thanks for coming, Jeff. It was a fun conversation, and hopefully we helped a few people figure out some stuff that they can try out in their process. It was a lot of fun. I certainly learned a few things. I'll have to go try out, too. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll wrap up the show, and we'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. 